You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.14, Endracore, and we are your hosts. I am Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and I'm cold. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta and now dreading the next three endo-written episodes. Womp, womp, womp. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 422 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, Bill P., Robert T., and Aaron M. This podcast would not be possible without your support. And remember, listeners, links to all of the different ways to support us and keep us ad-free are listed together on our website, gundampodcast.com support. A quick reminder, there will be no new episode next week on Saturday, November 28th. We will be taking that week off and we'll be back to our regular podcast release schedule the week following. You know what we're thankful for? All of you. Also Gundam. <laughs> and, you know, the fact that independent podcasting is possible. For those of you who celebrate, we know it's a weird one this year, but we hope you have a nice time regardless. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta Episode 16, Melee Aboard the Argama, or Agama no Hakuheisen. For research this week, Nina investigated the piano composer referenced by Glemmy and extramarital affairs in Japan in the mid-1980s, while I dabbled in perfidy. But first, let's see what's playing on the radio. Do you hear that? That is the sound of a spacenoid girl struggling to learn Bayer before she enters society on Axis. Tragically, she is 10 years old and it may already be too late for her to learn the basic skills required of a lady. If she can't, her only option will be to join the Federation Forces Kika Corps for girls under 15 interested in frontline service. Hello, I'm Captain Nina Nina's daughter news reporting anchor for Axis Today, and news creating acting captain of the Nindra. Every day, millions of spacenoid children all over the Earth's sphere are forced to go without the most basic resources. Whether because of endemic poverty, a crippling shortage of private tutors, or the chronic underfunding of public schools by a federation government that spends 90% of its budget developing new kinds of Gundams, countless children in the colonies receive an inadequate education, or no education at all. Less than 10% know where to put their napkin when they leave the table. And in a recent survey conducted by the Institute for Orphan Studies, fewer than a third of Spacenoid children reported having even one of the following early childhood experiences. Performing a piano recital at an intimate gathering of friends and extended family at a small theater rented for the occasion. Spending the long summer days lazing down by the spring on your uncle's country estate, 
while a winsome farmhand teaches you how to whistle with a blade of grass. Recovering your health through the intervention of your sour, rude, and utterly spoiled but energetic cousin who teaches you the wonders of gardening. Forgetting your loneliness after the tragic passing of your beautiful but frail mother by sequestering yourself inside your grandfather's study and reading the whole of Gibbon's The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Sneaking into a masquerade hosted by your family's most dastardly rivals only to fall in love with their daughter, thus touching off a chain of events that lead to disaster. Being featured in a 20 under 20 list published in a famous magazine. Rediscovering what freedom really means while bonding with a hot-headed stallion after a grievous injury ends his racing career being plucked from obscurity and offered a mysterious fortune by a solicitor who refuses to name his client, your benefactor, under any circumstances. Or frittering away your own meager resources while waiting for the proceeds of your vast family fortune to descend to you, following the resolution of an ongoing legal dispute. These and other similar experiences have been called absolutely essential by child development experts like Threemikar Dartmouth. Without them, Bright-eyed and promising young children are likely to grow up to become adults. That's why I started Nina's Daughters, a foundation dedicated to taking vulnerable spacenoid children off the street. We'll give them the skills, training, and motivation necessary to succeed in this hectic modern world. But we need your help. Just 100 gilas a day will pay for dancing and etiquette lessons. 500 gilas a week will pay for music lessons on a variety of instruments. For 1,000 gilas, we can test a child for new type potential. And for a mere 100,000 gilas, you can have one of our orphans. Every day, at-risk children are swept up in Ayug's conflicts. So act now. Your gift can make all the difference. And now the recap for Melee Aboard the Argama. The Argama is following Glemmy's ship, the Mindra, and trying to decide on a plan of attack. Bright wonders where they are headed, but El teases him for missing the obvious. They must be on their way back to Axis, hoping to replace the destroyed Endra. While Bright leaves the bridge for his quarters and Taurus tries to convince El to treat the captain with more respect, they lose track of the Axis ship. For some reason, Judo feels compelled to get on the PA system and exhort the crew to really come together and work as one. He blames their lack of unity for Bicha and Mondo's betrayal, calling them traitors. El storms over to him, enraged that he would call some of his oldest friends that, especially after Mondo helped them on Moon Moon. It's the truth, Judo yells back, and they continue to brawl, while Eno tries to break them up and Rue looks on, dismayed by their lack of discipline. Meanwhile, aboard the Mindra, Glemmy stands with a glass of wine in his hand, gazing out the window, while Lena plays a grand piano behind him. He receives word that they've intercepted a small vessel that is probably part of Ayug, and leaves to supervise its capture, telling Lena she has until the ship arrives to finish mastering her piano lesson. She continues to play, making faces at him once his back is turned. A mobile suit launches to intercept the small vessel, which turns out to be a civilian crewed cargo transport with a delivery for the Argama. 
One of the crew members, Millie, tries to pilot the ship out of the mobile suit's grasp, but it's no good. They are captured and taken aboard the Mindra. Goten is entrusted with their interrogation and instructs his men to focus on Millie, since he doubts the older man, Macha, will talk. The soldiers seem almost gleeful at the prospect of interrogating and even torturing the pretty young pilot. But the moment they brandish their whip, Madcha breaks down and tells them everything he knows. Looking over the cargo, Goten formulates a plan. They will hide Axis troops in the small ship's cargo storage and infiltrate and capture the Argama. A group of soldiers who survived the destruction of the Endra volunteer themselves for the mission and tell Goten they have named themselves Endra Corps. The normally cool and conniving Goten is moved almost to tears and they set out to capture the Ayug ship. With guns to their heads, the captured civilians pilot the delivery craft to the Argama, use correct code flares, and radio to explain that the Bawu mobile suit hanging from the bottom of their ship is an abandoned one they found along the way. Desperate to do something to avert the attack, Millie slams the ship into one of the Argama's catapult decks, trapping the Bawu before Gotten knocks her unconscious with the butt of his gun. Andrakor stream out of the small vessel and onto the Argama, one of them stopping a moment to raise a Xeon flag. Their first goal is to capture any mobile suits, a job made harder when L flying kicks one of them away from the Mark II. The soldier trying to capture the Zeta has a gun, but throws it away, offering Judo a fair fight. First Judo runs, then finds a pipe to help him fight off the soldier, until L, piloting the Mark II, swats the soldier away. Another climbs into the Zeta cockpit, Judo following right after. As they wrestle for control, the Zeta crashes into the Mark II, and both fall to the ground. Hold on to the Zeta, Judo calls out to L, as he takes off after the soldiers looking for the new mobile suit. He beats them to it, forming the double Zeta and sending them all running. Emery orders crew from the Lavian Rose to go to the Argama and help fight off the Axis attack. She goes with them and spots Gotten, who is holding Bright at gunpoint and demanding to be taken to the bridge. She comes at him from a side hall with her own gun, but he quickly disarms her and holds her hostage. Kiara, who has been a prisoner aboard the Argama since they left Moon Moon, seizes the chance to get free of her guards and join Goten. Enol, armed with only a plunger, comes out of another hall to tackle Goten, while Shinta and Kum grab Emery and pull her clear. Suddenly, air rushes out of the hall, dragging them all along, and instead of fighting each other, they are fighting to hang on. This whole time, the Bawu and its pilot have been stuck. In an attempt to get free, the pilot shoots several rockets at the repair arm his mobile suit is trapped under, but he missed, and the rockets blew a hole in the hull of the Argama. Emery and Goten are sucked into space before the emergency hatches close. Pleased to still have Emery as his hostage, Goten drags her along to the cockpit of the Bawu, and once inside, he takes the hapless pilot's place. With considerably more skill and ease, Goten maneuvers the Bawu out into space and flies over to the Argama's bridge. All efforts to take the Argama undamaged are forgotten. They can always repair it later, and Goten is unwilling to admit he's failed yet again. But his attack on the bridge is foiled by Judo's arrival in the Double Zeta. They chase each other around the ship, darting in and out of cover, until Judo is able to slice off one of the Bawu's arms. Their mission of failure, the Endracor use their verniers to fly out to the Bawu. It's their only means of escape. 
To give themselves some cover and free up room in the Bawu's cockpit, Goten jettisons Emery, pushing her out into space and toward the Double Zeta. Axis retreats, the Argama is safe, Emery is retrieved, and Judo sees that he is losing patience. When will they go save Lena? Well, after two episodes, both written by Suzuki and presented as one coherent arc, the Moon Moon or the Lost Colony arc, we are now embarking on a four-episode-long stretch that was all written by Endo. And although this one is not called Part 1, the way the Lost Colony Part 1 was, we can nonetheless assume that this episode is setting up the story elements, the character turns, all of the things that are going to be important and characteristic of this run of uh, four episodes. And I gotta say, it is not looking good. I am not optimistic for where we are going to go over the next few weeks. Yeah, I did not enjoy this one. There were a few different things that sort of fell flat about it. But perhaps most significantly for me, many of the characters behaved in ways that felt out of character for them. A lot of things that happened in this episode didn't fit with my understanding of these characters so far. And, you know, as we talked about in previous episodes, when you have very different teams working on runs of episodes, it would be very difficult or maybe impossible to have uh, like real consistency <laughs> in who these characters are, how they behave, what their personality is. But I find the, the variance jarring. I thought it was most jarring specifically with Gotten. Uh, and with Kiara when she briefly appears towards the end of the episode. We get a much sillier, less conniving, more emotional Gotten. I mean, we get a Gotten who does like his best Mashima impression. Yeah. But it's also clear that these are earnest feelings he's expressing when he like hides his eyes and weeps into his arm. That is such a contrast from the immediately prior episode where he does the exact same gesture. Except, in that case, we know that it's entirely put on in order to deceive people. Whereas in this one, it really seems to be his earnestly expressed feelings of, of uh, being incredibly moved by the dedication of the newly self-dubbed Endracore. As for Kiara, uh, she has never seemed particularly fond of Gotten before. <laughs> and so her putting herself between him and Bright... Uh, and saying this man is very important to me. And yeah. Not only is that not behavior we would expect from her, it's really uh, the complete opposite of the way she behaved with him when she was uh, abrading him for things that weren't really his fault, demoting him. I also saw some issues, though, with uh, Judo's behavior at the very beginning and Elle's reaction to it. I would like to hear more about this. We have this scene of Judo taking over the intercom, the PA system, uh, and telling everybody how we have to band together and we have to work as one. And it's because we don't do that that Axis was able to turn some of our crew against us. And he calls out Bichan Mondo as traitors. What is the point of this <laughs> whole scene? Oh, I agree with that completely. Yeah, I couldn't make sense of it. But even from a character perspective, what would Judo be hoping to achieve here? I cannot think of a single thing that this would achieve. Like, 
I have not seen any indication that Judo would think that a stirring speech from him would have any sort of <laughs> positive effect on morale. And we know that Judo's driving motivation in this episode, as in every episode since she was originally captured, his motivation is to rescue Lena. And I don't see how he could possibly think that giving a speech like this would uh, in any way advance the goal of rescuing Lena. And what's worse is even within this episode, it's inconsistent because here he gives this big speech about banding together and working together and uniting as one force so that they can defeat their enemies. But 10 minutes later, when he's fighting the Axis guy in the hangar, he's like, I'm not a soldier. And the only logical conclusion you can draw from his rejection of the soldier label uh, is that he doesn't really consider himself to be part of the Ayug army project. Right, and he never has, and that makes the little speech all the more nonsensical uh, and pointless. And it, I just, I don't know, Judo is so resistant to being a part of things and also so uncalculating that the idea of him making this little speech just doesn't fit with my mental image of him. Now, if he were giving this speech to distract everyone while, say, Eno or L stole the double Zeta... Then maybe. Yeah, that would be normal, consistent judo behavior. And then L's reaction, not the violence, because the, the violence is pure <laughs> L, but her fury that judo would call them traitors, again, rings false to me. She was one of the first people suspicious of them. She was one of the first people to kind of write them off. During Moon Moon, she was one of the ones who told Wanda, we don't like you, we don't trust you. The person who made the big speech about, you know, loyalty to your friends and loyalty to your friends trumping everything else was Eno. Uh, this would have been so much better of a scene if it had been Eno giving the speech and instead of Judo's like brash confidence, it was Eno sort of stammering his way through trying to like make a speech about friendship and the importance of it. Well, or Eno clearly very hurt by Judo's behavior rather than angry and sort of stammeringly saying like, but Mondo helped us. Like, yeah, again, I didn't think it made sense for L to be that angry about Judo calling Bichan Mondo traitors. I also found a lot of the, um, this I think first comes up in this scene, but happens throughout the episode. They don't quite manage to pull off most of the physical humor. There are a few moments that work well, and then there's a lot of moments where I'm like, that should have been funny, but it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, completely agree. Um, it's a shame. I think there's potential for some good humor in this episode. I don't think it lands. And maybe it's just because we were so soured on the episode as a whole because of its contents, but... Possibly. I don't know. The, the timing is off and... Or the circumstances don't quite work. I mean, for example, I think L pulling Judo down and him hitting his crotch on the barrier was not very funny. But I think her beating him in the face with a telephone was funny. Agree. <laughs> and it's not that we have anything against... Uh, judo getting hit in the crotch as a form of humor when Mashima kicked him in the crotch. <laughs> and it was very funny. That was very funny. <laughs> um, yeah, we're... <laughs> there is that one good moment when um, L like, whacks one of the Xeon soldiers with the barrel of the Mark II's gun. I thought that landed. Yeah, I thought so too. I thought Eno attacking Goten with a plunger <laughs> worked. That was pretty good. But then a lot of stuff like all of the Axis soldiers crammed into the cockpit of the Bawu at the end, uh, the potential was there and it just, it wasn't funny. 
It's especially disappointing because the episode did start pretty strong with Elle sassing Bright on the bridge. I can't remember if this is something we talked about in a talkback or outside of our recordings, so I'm going to say it again. Uh, an undercurrent of Double Zeta seems to be, these kids have no respect. And the funniest part of that scene is she's not wrong, but she could have left it when Bright said, oh, that's very clever thinking. She could have taken the compliment <laughs> and yeah. let it alone, but she had to poke fun at Bright. And then poke fun at him some more after he's clearly already irritated or upset. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is a generational difference between her and the other bridge crew. They're not a ton older than her, but they are much more conscientious toward Bright as their captain than she is. Another big character inconsistency is at the very end of the episode when Judo refuses to fire on the Bawu because he sees the Axis soldiers in normal suits. This is a, a replay of something that Amuro did way back at the beginning of First Gundam. Like in episode two, Amuro saw some people in normal suits and at first he refused to fire, but eventually he got over it and he did uh, try to kill them. For Judo to do that now, though, it doesn't fit. I mean, he's this is episode 16. He has killed so many people, and he's never shown any hints of that kind of innocence or naivete about the nature of what he's doing when he destroys mobile suits. He has never seemed particularly conflicted. I also wondered if it was a callback to earlier in the episode when he has that confrontation with one of the Axis soldiers, uh, the one where he says, I'm not a soldier, where they argue about what constitutes chivalry. Because it's not that Judo has no principles or no sense of honor, uh, but it is different from that of these Axis soldiers. That whole fight being yet another scene that what I have in my notes is, are we seriously spending more time on this? <laughs> Because how many times have how many times has this content been presented to us? This idea of the stupid chivalry versus the pragmatism of these young people. Uh, okay, we get it. Enough. <laughs> how does that add anything to this episode or to my knowledge of these characters or even to the excitement? Like it's it's also boring. Yeah. It doesn't add anything to this show. Also, why aren't they shooting? Like, I know that the reason given in the show is because they don't want to damage the Argama, but like small arms fire is not going to cause serious damage to the ship. And later in the episode, Gotten is willing to blow up the bridge and he just says, oh, we'll repair it. And they all brought guns. Yeah. Like this episode is clearly a callback to the Ramba Rawl commando infiltration of the white base in episode like 20 of the original series. But it lacks all the drama and punch of that episode. And the presence of the guns and their refusal to use them is just, uh, it's bonkers. This episode, and perhaps this will be true of all of Endo's work, I don't know, has a weird relationship with violence, like interpersonal violence, <laughs> that we should pick apart a bit. Uh, I'll start with perhaps the least creepy one, which is leaving Shinzan Kum to watch a not shackled, not manacled in any way, Kiara, uh, and forced prisoner labor? Yeah. And, um, and the fact that, like, Coombe is there threatening her with a stick? I don't so much mind the bit about leaving Shinta and Coombe to watch over her. It does stand out. But 
As long as she can't get access to a normal suit, and it does seem like they're kept at least somewhat secure, there's another way she can really go. But she could get a weapon. I, I feel like she could cause plenty of trouble if she set her mind to it. And the minute that she had an opportunity, right, she was like, I'm not going to listen to some brat kids. And she swats them away with a broom. Mm -hmm. My biggest problem with the violent moments in this episode that I'm thinking of is that I'm not sure if they're supposed to be funny or supposed to be disturbing. And I feel like it ought to be clear. What moments are you thinking of specifically? Oh, another example. The civilian vendors bringing equipment to the Argama are captured by Axis. We get a very gross scene of some soldiers talking about uh, having the opportunity to torture her. And they assume the woman will be the one who talks. Uh, one of them has a grin on his face when he asks Gotten, should we torture her? And then says, oh, I'm looking forward to it. They have a whip which... Unless lashings are a common punishment aboard the Mindra, this is absolutely like a sex object. Yeah, I... You highlighted the violence aspect of this. I was going to point out the gross uh, fascination with sex that shows up in this episode and some other ones that Endo has written. Well, there's a certain intersection there. Mm -hmm. They are clearly really enjoying the idea of torturing this woman. When the other civilian, uh, Medchar, cracks immediately, they're clearly very disappointed that they aren't able to uh, indulge themselves in a little torture. And I think the episode wants us to laugh at this. I think the episode wants us to think that this is funny. It's not. It's awful. This is like back in Judo's Decision, which, if you remember it, is the one where the kids go to school and they get attacked by the Geze for the first time. And that's the one that has some language and some shot construction which strongly evokes sexual assault and the threat of it being perpetrated against Fa. This has that same feeling to it. Like, it's there, but we're not supposed to be disturbed by it. Similarly, the scene between Bright and Emery in Bright's quarters. Uh, she is trying to undress Bright against his will. He is like holding her hands back while she's trying to open his shirt. And he tells her to wait and like, this is a sexual assault. <laughs> and she stops eventually um, and Bright for some reason embraces her because I guess we're supposed to think this is so star-crossed and romantic and dramatic and oh, how painful for these people in this conflicted situation. But yuck. <laughs> Yucky. I do not understand, after all of that, why he calls after her when she leaves. Oh, I understand that completely. Here's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but I have definitely been in situations where uh, someone has expressed interest in me that I did not return. Um, but it was also in a situation where uh, I didn't entirely know what to say. And besides, I'm not interested. No, thank you. And it was somebody with whom I like had to continue having a professional or friendly relationship with afterwards. And so after the moment of rejection, when the person like storms off in a huff, it's very understandable to me that you'd be like, wait, that's not how I wanted to leave things. Yeah, but here's the difference. She's sad, but she's not in a huff. And Bright does have feelings for her. And he shouldn't bleeping encourage her. No, no, he shouldn't. But... <laughs> Bright is uh, far from a perfect person. 
Yeah, now that he's an Oji-san. <laughs> I mean, clearly his type is seconds in command. Ooh. I'm just not feeling this storyline of, ah, Bright occasionally remembers he has a family. <laughs> the bit where the photo of Mirai floats, floats past <laughs> into his line of sight while he's embracing Emery, like... I think maybe this is another thing that was supposed to be funny and just wasn't. Uh, also, what is subtlety? Yeah, he just, I don't know. He needs to decide what the heck it is he wants. Yeah, the bit at the end where he goes out personally to like meet her in mid-space as she's coming back to the Argama. Oh, Bright, you have made a serious error here. Everything about the way that he interacts with her, right? Like, are you going to have an affair with her or not? Because if you're not, then you need boundaries. Stop leading her on. Stop encouraging her every time she tries to be like, okay, I guess this is over. <laughs> Only for Bright to be like, let me put a hand on your shoulder yeah. and tell you how much I appreciate you. Every interaction between Emery and Bright is Bright saying, I'm sorry, I can't, dot, 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 but. <laughs> yeah, if we thought, um, if we thought Emery was the calculating one early on, I don't think she's particularly calculating now. I don't think Bright is either, but Bright needs to get his head together. Yeah. Bright, you are a 27 or 28-year-old man. <laughs> you, have a fully you have a fully functioning frontal lobe. You are the only person on the ship who does. You need to use it. Be responsible. Uh, speaking of Bright, although uh, looping back around to the out-of-character... Uh, we get a very pouty Bright in this episode. Uh, you know, L takes some digs at him, and instead of countering that, he just leaves the room. <laughs> he gets chased off his own bridge by a snotty teenager. And then at the end of the episode, he is sitting sideways in his chair, curled up, <laughs> refusing to look at or talk to anyone. I actually kind of love this version of Bright. But it is different, right? This is not... <laughs> This is not the bright we've come to know so far. This is a, a new development. Before we get to, I think, the biggest and most interesting of the sort of confluence of sex and violence bits, I do want to point out, in the middle of a hostage situation on a hostile ship, Gotten takes a moment to admire Kiara in an apron. Oh, you look so domestic. I love that about you. Just again, really unnecessary and kind of gross and serves no function in the story. I mean, the messaging is clear, right? Like, sexy, powerful, aggressive Kiara, bad. Demure, domestic, wearing an apron, prisoner housewife Kiara, good. <laughs> this is a very small thing, but I thought it was a little weird that... When they're talking about the fight between L and Judo, uh, they refer to it as a lover's quarrel. They don't use the word recreation. <laughs> what do they call it now? I don't remember the Japanese, but they definitely don't say recreation because I listened to it a couple of times just to see if I had missed it the first time, which is weird since that was how they consistently described the conflicts between Fa and Camille. I guess it's gone out of favor. I guess so. Fashion changes so quickly in space. The last bit that I want to address is Lena's captivity. Which takes up a very small portion of the runtime of the episode. But I had so many thoughts about it. Oh, me too. <laughs> 
First of all, the Mindra has a piano lounge with floor-to-ceiling windows and a grand piano. Do you think every Axis ship comes equipped with a piano lounge? Obviously, they have to be equipped for entertaining. Formal dining, piano lounge, you name it. How many piano makers do you think there are on the Axis asteroid? I have a lot of questions about the economy of this civilization. (laughs) Melina has been captured for, on the outside, what, maybe a couple weeks? Something like that, yeah. So either she has learned piano very quickly, or she already knew a little bit. I won't totally rule out her having had lessons, because for all that it seems like that is not something they could have afforded, it also feels very much like something Judo would have wanted to do for her. Yeah, I can sort of, I'm writing this fanfic in my head where Judo like trades some hubcaps to a a piano teacher. Yeah, because he has these, these aspirations of sending her to the school uptown, and we've talked about how much of that is not just about a quote-unquote good school, it's about allowing her to escape their class to the next one up, or possibly several up. Well, and I feel like piano lessons have functioned as a kind of um, aspirational, class-climbing form of education for young girls, uh, especially of the, like, working class and lower middle class. Yeah, if my memory serves, piano lessons come up in a lot of fiction and nonfiction, as a a class marker, as something aspirational, as something people really wanted to provide for their children. Which brings us to the rather disturbing conclusion that in a way, Lena is now getting the education that her brother always wanted her to have. 100%, yes. She is is living like a woman of the class to which he wanted to, you know, give her the boost to. She's wearing gowns, she's sitting down to formal dinners, she's playing piano, she's... Rubbing elbows with the children of privilege. And this gets at something that Judo probably didn't know, certainly didn't acknowledge, when he was talking about sending Lena to the the nice school uptown, which is that for Lena to join this other class, she kind of has to be separated from him. There isn't really an option where she can be, like a member of the upper class, and also his little sister. Was deeply confused by Glemmy's comment uh, when he tells Lena that she needs to finish sort of mastering this piece of piano music by the time the ship returns, uh, and that he says that is what a proper lady would do. But he says, lady, which we looked up, And means first lady like we use it in the United States, the wife of the president or prime minister or whoever. Yeah, the translation suggests he's saying like in order to join the upper class in order to be considered a a proper lady with all the accomplishments appertaining thereto, you must learn this uh, piece of piano music. Not even just about the piano music, but a sense of like diligence and competence Mm -hmm. at this thing. But from the Japanese, and maybe we're missing some nuance in the translation here, but it really does seem like he's saying, in order for you to, like, marry an important person in Axis, like, in order for you to (laughs) marry a high-level Axis official and become a first lady. In order for you to be, like, one of the leading women in society. Which strongly suggests that uh, Glemmy is preparing her for that role, that he intends for her to marry some... Uh, someone in Axis, possibly himself, possibly somebody else. And that's weird. That's not, that's weird. 
Yeah, I I can't really imagine him going to all of this trouble just to kill time <laughs> in space. <laughs> it's like, I'm bored. I'm going to teach this girl piano. It doesn't seem like he's doing the um, My Fair Lady thing of just doing it to see if he can. Like, what is the end game for Glemmy here? Right. It really seems like the end game is uh, to make this 10-year-old girl into the perfect bride for some powerful older man. Yeah, if he just needed a hostage to get Rue, then he could leave her in a cell. Does he even mention Rue in this episode? No. Hmm. Yeah, I... I really wonder where this whole thing is going because it seems to be the only justification for having Lena's capture last this long. I decline to comment on the grounds that I already know the answer. <gasps> I will, however, add another comment about this scene. I want to point out uh, that Glemmy is drinking wine. Wine has shown up three times so far in Double Zeta. Twice, Glemmy has been drinking wine. Once at that dinner scene where he was uh, looking up Lena's skirt. Uh, once in this scene, and then all the way back on Shangri-La when we had that corrupt official with his prized wine collection. So a strong association is being made here between the consumption of wine and this upper-class, morally bankrupt group of people. I was thinking about why the treatment of women in this episode bothered me so much. There is some just overtly awful stuff, like the bit about torturing Millie, but Every woman in this episode, except for the briefly appearing Rue, is positioned in a role that is uh, both inferior to and inextricable from some real or hypothetical man. So when Elle objects to Judo's speech calling Bicha and Mondo traitors, we are told, oh, this is just because Elle is carrying a torch for Bicha. Or Mondo or both, yeah. according to Judo. When Chiara appears... It is to position herself between Bright and Gotten and talk about how important Gotten is to her. And when Gotten looks at her in the apron and compliments her, this depiction of Chiara is clearly meant to suggest domesticity, uh, to portray her as though she were a housewife. Lena is both directly connected to Glemmy and under his power and doing what he says, but also by talking about her being a first lady, he is very explicitly connecting her to some hypothetical future husband. Millie, of course, is under the command of this... <laughs> God, he's this, so awful. Yeah, this awful other guy. Madcha. Medcha Mucha, or whatever his name is. Yeah. The only points where I felt good about Endo's portrayal of women in this episode were... Point one. Lena pulls some faces at uh, Glemmy when he leaves. So we know he hasn't broken her spirit, right? She's still Lena. She's playing along because she can understand the uh, possible advantages of doing so, that Glemmy might let his guard down, that she might have some opportunities. But she is still who she is. And second, that despite the... Uh, gross assumptions of the Axis soldiers, Millie is in fact the very brave one. Millie is the one who tries to resist their capture. Millie is the one who says, I don't know anything. You can't make me talk. And Millie is the one who crashes the launch onto the uh, catapult deck, pinning the Bawu and keeping it out of commission for most of the fight. And L most of the time, because Elle's great. Oh, yeah. Her uh, flying kick to that one guy to get him away from the uh, Mark II. Truly excellent. 
Why is Elle so amazing? I don't know, but it's great. And now the research section. First, Nina has research about Bayer, the piano composer referenced by Glemmy. We both thought it felt oddly specific for Glemmy to not only be making Lena learn piano, but to mention a particular composer. It turns out that composer Ferdinand Bayer, born 1803 and died 1863, is best known today for his piece Beginning Piano School, or Elementary Instruction Book for the Piano. I'm not going to try to say that in German. <laughs> this piece was published in 1851 and was meant to help beginning piano students learn and practice fundamentals of the instrument. It continues to be, quote, a major influence in piano pedagogy since its publication and to this day is foundational to many different piano curricula around the world, including in Japan. Because of the age of the piece, it is in the public domain. Uh, well, most versions of it. And so in the show notes, I also link to a page that has numerous PDFs of the piece uh, with instructions in the original German, in English, in French, in Italian. So the subtext of what Glemmy is saying here is not like, Lena, you need to master this very difficult piano piece to display your virtuosity. It's like, you need to get down the very most basic thing from this foundational instructional book. Yeah, it... Uh, we speculated in the talkback whether Lena knew any piano before, but the fact that he's given her a beginner piano text to work on seems to indicate she is starting from the beginning. I will have to scrap my fanfic about judo trading hubcaps to some old piano teacher in their neighborhood. And now Tom's research on the considerably more technical than I realized term, perfidy. The first thing that the Endra Corps do when they crash land on the Argama is deploy a small, space-adapted flagpole on the deck of the catapult. It clamps onto the hull, probably via magnet, then there's a puff of compressed air and a small Xeon flag unfurls to wave briefly in the artificial breeze. This is a small action, it's accorded no more than four seconds. But of course, it is often in these small details that we find the most interesting questions. Why include this cut at all? And why would the Endra Corps waste time deploying their flag when they need every precious second to seize the Argama's complement of mobile suits? Answering that question requires us to take a brief look at the customary laws of war that theoretically sort of govern the conduct of warfare in the real world. War may be a bloody business, but for most of recorded history, there has also been at least a minimal agreement that no matter how much antipathy may lie between the two opposing forces, they are still bound to fight the war according to certain rules and in what passes for a civilized manner. When we talk about war crimes or we call someone a war criminal, at least if we're using the classic literal definition of that term, we aren't referring merely to crimes that are related to war, but specifically to violations of the laws of war. At first, the laws of war were merely agreements made between two belligerents for the duration of their conflict. 
Early histories by Polybius, Herodotus, and Thucydides mention such treaties, including one between two neighboring city-states in archaic Greece who agreed to a ban on missile weapons. There are also treaties that provided for limits to the number of soldiers permitted to each side or for battles to be settled by a contest of champions. Other early rules governing the conduct of war were based in religious prohibitions. Often they were about the inviolability of certain classes of non-combatants, like priests. For example, in 697, civic and religious leaders in Ireland, and part of what is now Scotland, agreed to what is sometimes called the Law of the Innocents, forbidding the killing, even in war, of women, children, priests, and some peasants. Punishments for violating the law included everything from fines to mutilation, execution, and being cursed. But in the 19th century, some international humanitarians began to advocate for codified international laws of war that would apply to every nation and every conflict. In 1863, at a conference in Geneva, Switzerland, an international committee called upon each country to ensure the neutrality and the inviolability of medical personnel and ambulances. In the following year, a conference meeting in Geneva issued the Convention for the Amelioration of the Condition of the Wounded in Armies in the Field. There were several false starts in the ensuing decades, but in 1899, the first International Peace Conference in The Hague drafted a convention with respect to the laws and customs of war on land. At the time, three practices of modern warfare were specifically banned dropping explosives or projectiles from balloons, the use of asphyxiating gases, and the use of expanding or explosive bullets. Since then, there have been periodic international conferences to update and amend these international laws of war. As you would expect, major updates followed each of the world wars, and the conventions decided upon in Geneva in 1949 are popularly known today as the Geneva Conventions. Consistent with the long history I've alluded to already, the main concern of these laws of war has been the protection of non-combatants, including civilians and medics, uh, soldiers of neutral powers, and also those soldiers who are rendered unable to fight, whether by wounds or sickness or some other reason. But from the beginning, the drafters of these modern conventions and protocols and codices have recognized the possibility that soldiers might take advantage of the laws of war by posing, for instance, as non-combatants, or pretending to be wounded, in order to deceive, ambush, and kill their enemies. The technical term for this is perfidy, and it's been defined as acts that invite the confidence of an adversary to lead him to believe that he is entitled to, or obliged to accord, protection under the rules of international law applicable in armed conflict, with intent to betray that confidence. Pretending to be disabled by sickness or injury, pretending to surrender, pretending to negotiate under truce, pretending to be civilians, falsely displaying the emblems of the Red Cross or United Nations peacekeeping personnel, or wearing the uniforms or emblems of the enemy nation or of states not party to the conflict, are all considered perfidious, if you intend to betray that confidence. Based on all of that, you would think that what the Endra Corps does here must be a war crime. After all, they have disguised themselves as a civilian, non-combatant freight hauler in order to slip past Ayug's defenses and take them off guard. This is exceedingly perfidious conduct, if ever I've seen any. 
But there is an important clarification to the laws of war that I have described so far, and it is that they apply specifically to land warfare. Now, many of the rules do apply to sea warfare as well, but there is at least one huge glaring exception, and it is what is sometimes called false flag operations, or sailing under false colors. In naval warfare, it is, and has long been considered totally legitimate, and not at all perfidious, to sail under another nation's flag, even to the point of using that ruse to lure in and ambush an enemy vessel, in a fashion that would be absolutely prohibited if the ships were on land instead of sea. It was even common practice for ships to carry the flags of numerous different nations whenever they put to sea, just in case. The reason for this exception from the general rule about perfidy seems to be simple tradition. Every mighty seafaring nation has done this, and so should any of them complain about the practice of sailing under false colors, as did the neutral United States after the British vessel Lusitania was torpedoed while sailing under American colors during World War I, a country could simply respond by pointing out the complaining nation's own history of false flag operations as the British did in that case. Nowadays, with ship-to-ship -ship identification being handled outside of visual range by aircraft or newfangled sensors, sailing under false colors isn't really relevant anymore. And so I think there's actually very little chance that there will ever be a rule created to prohibit it. Beyond merely flying a false flag, some ships were even modified so that their physical profiles would more closely match those of enemy ships. Longtime listeners will no doubt remember the action-packed story of the World War II commando raid in the San Nazaire dockyard, which was conducted using a British vessel flying a German flag that had, among other things, had its smokestacks cut down so that it looked more German. This deception was the key to getting the raiders past the German shore defenses, and given how many of their boats were damaged or sunk in the brief window between when the ruse was uncovered and when the commandos landed, it seems likely that each second of hesitation from gunners who were unsure if the approaching vessels were friends or foes saved dozens of commando lives. Then, of course, there were the Q ships. These were faux merchant vessels, loaded down with weapons and sent out as bait to lure in and destroy enemy submarines. But long before that, privateers used false flags as a matter of course, and formal national navies weren't above the practice either. Famous real-world naval commanders like Sir Francis Drake and John Paul Jones used false colors on the regular, and naturally this made its way into the fictional exploits of characters like Horatio Hornblower or Jack Aubrey. I wonder sometimes how much of the difference between the way this kind of ruse is treated on land versus at sea is actually a class thing. A bunch of conscript soldiers lying in ditches pretending to be wounded so that they can ambush an enemy patrol that's the deceitful perfidy of those untrustworthy lower classes. But captains of warships are, as a rule, gentlemen of class and breeding. How could we impugn their collective reputations by suggesting that a practice taken for granted by generations of them was actually dishonorable all along? But regardless, there remains one very important practical detail which separates lawful, customary, legitimate false flag attacks from perfidious, dastardly, and ungentlemanly false flag attacks. And it is that you absolutely must raise the true flag before you open fire. 
you can raise it seconds before you fire, or even, in theory, milliseconds before you fire. But you do need to raise your flag. And that is why it's the very first thing the Endercore does when they land on the Argama. Because they're true and honorable knights of the space sea. They're like the Three Musketeers. And they would never engage in war crimes. At least not so long as there's a convenient technicality available that provides them with a get-out-of-perfidy-free card. Although, you know, actually now that I think about it, taking non-combatants like Millie and Mencha hostage and threatening them with torture is definitely also a war crime, and they were really disturbingly enthusiastic about that. And now that I realize that, the whole, ooh, do we get to torture the cute girl scene feels even worse. And now Nina's research on extramarital affairs in Japan. The prominence of the Bright-Emery storyline, their obvious attraction to each other, and Bright's apparently conflicted feelings, since he's married to Mirai, led to a lot of speculation from the two of us about the prevalence of workplace affairs in Japan in the 1980s. Young women were entering the workforce in never-before-seen numbers, and the culture of long hours and mandatory socializing after work, with that socializing often involving heavy drinking, created a perfect storm of conditions almost tailor-made to promote intimacy between people who work together and to make working men feel distant or disconnected from their wives and families. This is also clearly not an ethical non-monogamy situation. If Bright and Mirai had agreed beforehand that he was allowed to pursue other relationships while he was away, I don't think he would seem so uncomfortable. And there would be no particular reason for him to resist his feelings for Emery. So, how common were workplace affairs in 1980s Japan, and how were they viewed? This discussion will focus on heterosexual marriages, since gay marriage did not and still does not have legal recognition in Japan. Also because the relationship that we're examining is hetero. Obviously, the papers I read reference social mores and trends, and individual feelings will certainly vary about these topics. Unfortunately, most of my sources discuss more recent, which is to say since the 2000s, attitudes. And interestingly, most of the sources I could find focus on women's sexual and romantic behavior in and outside of marriage. However, these sources did provide useful cultural context about extramarital relationships generally, and about how men's behavior is regarded as contrasted with women's. Despite a decrease in arranged meetings with an eye to marriage, and the increase in so-called love marriages in contemporary Japan, one of my sources describes prevailing attitudes this way. Even today, romantic love may be regarded as an added bonus, an additional something. Prasu alpha. Romance is certainly not regarded as a necessary condition for a happy marriage, and it might be regarded as unrealistic or even as an undesirable, destabilizing element in what should be a stable family unit. There's a focus on pragmatic and child-focused compatibility, because marriage in modern Japan continues to be primarily focused on reproduction and maintenance of the family system. There are increases in divorce, which may indicate changing expectations of what marriage is for the people in it, but at the same time, living together without being married and having children outside of marriage remain very, very rare. I think it's 1% or less of births that occur outside of a marriage. 
Marriage is still considered a rite of passage into adulthood, and it is the framework for having and raising children. As of 2004, over 30% of respondents to a survey reported that their marriages were sexless. Marital sexuality is so tied to reproduction that once the desired number of children have been produced, marriages can become less and less sexually active. By 2012, the number of survey respondents who described their marriages as sexless rose to over 40%. There is a sense that romantic and sexual intimacy are largely separate from marriage and marital obligations. If a man's primary obligation is to be a provider, that doesn't really have anything to do with romantic or sexual intimacy. And if a woman's primary obligation in marriage is to raise the children well, again, that doesn't have anything to do with romantic or sexual intimacy with your partner. And so even love marriages, marriages that start with romance, love, sexual interest, uh, can become more companionate or more like pure socioeconomic arrangements over time. There is additionally a strong disincentive for divorce, especially for couples who have children. There's a lot of social stigma, and there's also considerable financial hardship for most single mothers. There's very little enforcement of alimony or child support payments. There's some indication that women who don't want to marry but are looking for romance and sexual intimacy seek out married men as partners. Because a married man is not looking for a marriage partner. Uh, And women might be disinterested in marriage for any number of reasons. If marriage equals someone providing for you, but you don't need that. If marriage means having to give up your career to raise children and you don't want to. Uh, If marriage is seen as a loss of independence or if they're resistant to the uh, persistently very non-egalitarian expectations in most marriages and so on. Uh, One woman described an additional appeal of a married man, an aura of responsibility, authority, confidence, all things endowed on a man by his being married. Conversely, married men may find women who work appealing for extramarital relationships as they are unlikely to become financially dependent or to expect financial support. Most of the papers I read involved conversations with a, a wide variety of women Uh, many of whom voiced, lots of men have affairs. Japanese men really think that for a man to have an affair is just normal, and there's a lot of people who speak openly about it. A 2018 anonymous survey found that for married men ages 20 to 49, 35 to 40% of them had had an affair at least once. Uh, Not the majority, but a pretty significant portion. To quote one of the papers I read, which was Playing Like Men, the Extramarital Experiences of Women in Contemporary Japan, quote, the structure of Japanese society endorses male infidelity. There are occasional negative consequences in the workforce, but these are not usually upheld by the courts. There have been firings over affairs, but even when the affairs are specifically prohibited by company policy, the courts often award damages to the fired employee or require the company to reinstate the employee to their job. Words used to describe male infidelity reflect this sort of casual and accepted attitude. Male infidelity is often described as asobi, which literally means play, or uaki, which means light, floating feelings of unfaithfulness. Versus women's infidelity being described with words like kansu, illicit affair, mitsu, secret affair, fugi, immorality, 
and fute, disloyalty. The language used makes clear that the infidelity by men is not serious, whereas infidelity by women is very serious and immoral, though the difference in how the two are characterized has changed and will likely continue to change over time. The attitude that sex is sex, marriage is marriage, they are two very different things, is not confined to men, but is voiced by both men and women who pursue extramarital relationships. The companionate, the romantic, and the sexual are seen as different spheres that in an ideal situation may overlap, but that pragmatically are separate. All of which throws Mirai and Bright's relationship, as well as their relationships with other people, into a very different light. I found myself thinking about how Mirai and Bright are together in First Gundam, versus how Mirai and Cameron are, versus how Mirai and Slegger are. Slegger didn't make much sense to us because we'd see no sign of romance or companionship between them. But what if it was purely sexual? What if she was just overcome with attraction to this person? <laughs> the like 6'5", 240-pound lantern-jawed guy? Yeah. Yep. The arrangement with Cameron had been about marriage as a social and economic arrangement between two families. Mirai's given reason for breaking the arrangement is not that she's in love with someone else, though we know she has feelings for Bright. It's not even that she's no longer interested in marriage, but that at this point their values are too dissimilar. Am I remembering that right? Yeah, basically. It also, at that point, doesn't make as much sense for the Cameron Bloom side of things either, because Mirai's famous and wealthy father is dead, and we don't know what's become of her like family fortune. My memory of Mirai and Bright together in First Gundam is of the two of them as being very companionate and supportive, but never much of that sense of doki-doki, right? Nobody's heart is thrilling, nobody's blushing. They like each other a lot, <laughs> and they get along well. But it's very different than whatever exactly it is Bright is feeling for Emery. In terms of what we're supposed to take away from these scenes and what they're supposed to tell us about these characters, I don't think it's meant to reflect badly on either of them. In fact, I think Bright's reluctance is to, supposed to show us what a sort of special and loyal man he is, that even after all of this time apart from his wife and children, and even in the face of this beautiful young woman throwing herself at him, he feels conflicted about something that a lot of people uh, sort of take for granted as just a thing that happens. Yeah, I think it's supposed to be part of making Bright feel like a very relatable, understandable person. He's the war hero captain of a space battleship, but he's also just like every other 28-year-old office worker that you've met. Next time on episode 3.15, Bits and Pieces, we cover Mobosuit Gundam Double Zeta, episode 17, and The Way Adults Are. It's the G-Armor. I mean, it's the G-Defensor. I mean, it's the Mega Rider. Watch where you're pointing that thing. Remember Lena? Future sinks. Is this supposed to be funny?
real fascination with asphyxiation. Everyone's a critic. Outclassed. Well, judo is a bit outclassed. Huh? Huh? A, a bit outclassed? Because. And I am become death, destroyer of worlds. You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music this season is New York City, instrumental, by Spinning Merkaba. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, on Facebook.com slash GundamPodcast, or by email at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, Bright has done nothing wrong with Emery. Him not rejecting her advances is clearly just him taking the opportunity to cement a lasting alliance between AUG and Anaheim Electronics. Well played, Bright. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you. But the world needs to know. The wrong Gundam opinion this week comes from Very in the MSB Discord. Thanks, Very. And thank you for listening. Psych yourself up. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. uh, now I'm also thinking of Joan of Arc weightlifting. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I think her beat. Uh, Maybe he had... I don't know if you can say that on the podcast. I don't think I can. (laughs) Here's another thing I can't say on the podcast. (laughs) Uh, I think I'm ready to go uh, if you are. I am. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. Love to go. Love to recording. <laughs> Love to be productive. Nah. <laughs> I mean, y- I feel as if my mental well-being is dependent on it, but I don't like it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You and productivity are in a codependent relationship. That sounds about right, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, enable that, shall we? <laughs> While flying under American colors, flying. And now Nina's research about extra... Now Nina's research on sirens. 
the kind that sing? The sirens that love you up and turn you into a horny toad? Ugh, if only. I feel like the life of a toad is very simple. <laughs> and now Nina's research about extra... <laughs> it's triggered by the word extra. Delete this part, it's very incriminating. <laughs> Dare you try again? And now... Learning a secret technique out of a hitherto unrevealed folio kept by your mysterious and mysteriously scarred fencing master so that you can finally beat your rival and win the heart of fair Eleanor. Eleanor.